0: What can we do to fight back against big pharma and the compromised medical industry? We can become healthy and break free from the perpetual cycle of being poisoned by criminal organizations like most pharmaceutical companies. Come check out what may be the most powerful antioxidant known to man C60 Purple Power. The benefits of C60 have been personally outstanding. I use it every day and I feel incredible. I have tons of energy, I sleep great, and I haven't even come down with a cold since I started using C60 over two years ago. You can even get C60 for your pets. Do your own research, click the link in the description, and check out their website. If you order from that link or use coupon code KNOWLEDGE10, you get 10% off your order plus free shipping. What is your health worth to you? Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, my guest is Grant Cameron. He is an author, lecturer, and researcher who has been involved with ufology since 1975 after his personal sightings. He has made over 20 trips to the National Archives and most of the various presidential archives looking for presidential UFO material, and has a collection of every UFO document released by presidential libraries. Most of his research can be found at presidentialufo.com. Mr. Cameron, welcome, and how are you doing tonight? Just fine, Chris.
1: Thanks for having me on. I appreciate your interest in what I'm doing.
0: I've been looking forward to tonight. We live in fascinating times. We're seeing things we've never seen before, like the mainstream media openly discussing UFOs. We're seeing leaks from the government. We're seeing rock stars teaming up with the military-industrial complex. And we're seeing a revealing of our hidden world like we've never seen before. And it seems to be coinciding with an awakening and a rising of our consciousness. And I can't wait to get to all of this. But first, like I do with all my first-time guests, I'd like to know what got you started with everything. And I understand at some point you had a shift in consciousness in the way you look at the phenomena.
1: Yeah. Um, So basically, the way it starts, I'm at university. Not interested in UFOs. Can't even think of ever having thought about extraterrestrial life or anything like that. I was interested in near death studies. I had done a uh, paper on events surrounding people's death. Like, do you ever do people ever get up and walk away? Miracles. Does anybody ever come to greet people before they die? Does anybody ever predict their death? Did anybody ever near death experience? And this is back in the nineteen seventies. This is when near death experiences actually got going with the first book, I think, in nineteen seventy five. So I was doing that kind of stuff. So I was into weird stuff, and. Um, I was a follower of Edgar Casey, but the only reason I actually got involved in the UFO thing, and I would say that's my entire UFO career, is I got dragged down one rabbit hole after another that I didn't intend to go. It's like almost like somebody's sort of dragging me from one rabbit hole to another. So what happens is uh, there's a small town called Carmen, Manitoba. I live right in the middle of Canada, above North Dakota, and there's a small town Carmen is having all these sightings, and it's a big story. And I live in Winnipeg, which is a city of about 700,000 people. And um, this thing is being seen, you know, almost every night, and it's a big story. And I said to my friend, this is February of 1975, I said, we should drive around the city. I said, well, instead of driving around the city, why don't we go out to Carmen and see what everybody's looking at? I had no interest in UFOs. I just wanted to see, like, what's the deal here? I was in the paper, and uh, let's go see what everybody's looking at. So we didn't go. We didn't go for three months. And we didn't go until May, just after the Vietnam War ended, a couple weeks after the end of the Vietnam War. And um, what happened was um, the the local TV studio, I won't get into the whole detail of the story, but um, basically catches this thing on the ground and um, catches it and it jumps off the ground and it's caught on TV camera and it flies across the sky and stuff. So when that happened, and later, 35 years later, I, I came to believe that was not a random event. That was, I think, maybe even to get me out there. So the, this event takes place, and then I said to my friend, come on, let, let's go. Let's go see what they're looking at. So we drive out that night, and it's May, middle of May 1975. We drive in the town, out of the town, into the town, and we're looking at the sky, and I'm not into astronomy. I still don't really know stars and you know constellations and stuff. We're looking at the sky, and we're basically looking and asking, like, What are they looking at? Like, you know, and we see Venus setting and we see, you know, the North Star. We see all the stuff. And we're going, is that what they're looking at? Like, what's everybody looking at? And so we did this for about an hour. And then what happened is my friend Larry, who I just actually had coffee this morning. I still, I've known the guy for like, you know, 60 years. And I have coffee with him every Saturday morning and he went on with his life. But so anyway, Larry's driving and I'm in the passenger seat, and there's one other guy in the back seat, and we're driving in the town. And, my, and So after an hour, we didn't know what everybody looking at. Uh, nothing impressed us. So my, so Larry says, okay, well, let's drive back in the town one more time, and if we don't see anything, let's go home. I said, fantastic. It's been a total waste of time. <laughs> we, turned, we turned the car around to go back in town, and just as we turned the car on the road heading back west into this town, it appeared from the left to the right, and everybody in the car. There was because we were looking at things. Is that what they're looking at? Is that, is that what, you know? Is you know all this kind of questioning? When it appeared, nobody said, "Is that what they're looking at?" I wonder if that's what it is. Everybody just went, "There it is!" It was just so bizarre. It was like we immediately knew this is this is what people were talking about, and it flew. It was very low. Um, hard to tell at night because it was it was pitch black. Uh, hard to tell the size. But, you know, it was pretty low, a couple hundred feet off the ground, flying right in front of the car from left to right, coming from the south from the American border area, going north. And it was bobbing up and down. It wasn't sort of flying in a straight line. It was sort of bobbing like a fisher- like a bobber on a fishing line where it's sort of moving up and down in the water. It was like that. It was sort of moving. And it was a red plasma object. It was extremely uh, bright, but you couldn't see the shape of it. You could tell it was... Longer than was high, but because this plasma was so intense, you couldn't see the shape of the object. So as it it came, we go, whoa, there it is. And it flew right in front of the car down low. And it wasn't light in the sky. It was an object. It was in pretty close. And I mean, I just like fell off the edge of the earth. I mean, I I couldn't believe it. I was actually getting out of the car before the car had stopped. We were pulling off because there was a set of school buses that were parked outside the town. We were about a mile out of the town. And I knew it was going to go in behind these school buses because it was so low, and I wanted to see this thing. So I'm, I'm, the, the car's still moving. I'm, I'm getting out of the car to run through the ditch to go across this parking lot so I can stand where these buses are and watch this thing as it flies off. And it just sort of, you know, it was this slow-pulsing uh, object that just flew off into the northeast like, it's, like it wasn't doing anything. It was just like, burn, we used to make a joke. It was burning gas. It was just flying along. It wasn't going anywhere, doing anything. So I drag all my friends out there two nights later, and I'm just like absolutely hyped. I'm just like, you got to see this. It's the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life. Drag all my friends out there. And there was a lot of people. There was a lot of people from the the, to- the city that were out there trying to see this thing. And so the second night, um, all my friends go home after an hour. They said, I can still remember, Cameron, we're, we're no, no, no. We're, we're going back to Winnipeg. We're, we're hungry. We're going for pizza. And I go, oh, my goodness. And so they all pile out. There's about 28 people the second night on this road and there was people all over the place so on our road there's about 28 people my friends all take off when this thing finally comes which is not long after my friends left maybe 15 20 minutes after my friends left this time it it was a little bit different it was like a flashing there's some kids I interviewed later on that called it the bouncing ping-pong ball and when they said that I said oh yeah I've seen that I know what you're talking about and it was like bouncing the sky it was like eight inches in the field of vision it was it was like a flash cube and it would flash 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 and it's moving around and one kid is in the field. They're sitting there waiting. I dragged all these kids out there to see this thing. And they said, is that what it is? I'm going, I guess so. I mean, it didn't look like what I saw the first night. But it was jumping around. I remember the guy, there was a car beside us. And the guy was, he was basically unloading the camera. He had this, were motor drives back in 1975 where it advanced the film automatically. And they'd just come out then, So it was like you could hit this click, zzz, click, zzz, click, click, as he's unloading the, the camera as this thing is coming towards us. And it was flying right at us. And as it got, came closer, these flashes got closer together. And then there was a girl that was crying. She couldn't see the thing because it was jumping around the sky. She said, I can't see it. And she's crying. And there was people swearing and screaming. And it was just like a, like a football game. It was unbelievable. And it came towards us. And then the flashes got closer together. And then suddenly it reappeared as this object I'd seen the first night. This red plasma object sort of a, a slight green glow on the backside of it. And it was coming right at us the second night. And it was down low again, just off the ground. And uh, I was just amazed. And it made this turn, made a left-hand turn. And again, it just sort of flew off into the northeast like it was burning gas. It just flew off, doing nothing. And I at that point, then I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, my God. So I'm watching this thing fly away. I'm thinking, wow, that could actually be from another planet. I was just like, whoa, it's just consumed by this thing. So anyway, to make a long story short, I grew run around, all my friends gone with their life. I took people on tours out there. And at the end, I just basically said, okay, here, here's where you go. Cause these things started to appear on the ground. I, I would write these maps. I was, I just, I'd seen enough and I still, a lot of people want to go and sky watch. I have no interest whatsoever. I mean, I saw a lot of stuff and I'm just not interested. So I would make maps for people. Here's where you go. If you want to see these lights on the ground and Good luck. I'm not going because there's really nothing you could learn except to sit there and look at it. And say, yeah, it's pretty weird. So I, I interview the, the, the story was half the people in the town had seen it based upon a poll I'd taken in the high school, maybe more than half, 59%, I think in the, in the high school. And I interviewed everybody. And then that's when uh, I got my wake up call. I tried to publish the manuscript and nobody would give me the time of day. And the local publisher in this city of 700,000, he should have published it because it was a big story. Said Mr. Cameron, "You may believe in this kind of stuff. Count me among the unbelievers." And from that day on, I've never done sightings. I said, "This is a total waste of time." I can tell you my and I was I was had some pretty bizarre sightings. I was close enough one time to jump on the on the thing, but you know. So I, I can tell you my stories, and you go, "Well, it's kind of cool," you know, like. But it doesn't really prove anything. It doesn't get you anywhere. So I, I gave up on the sightings. I said, "I can't believe this." I mean, they wouldn't publish this book. So then all I was interested in, is, is as that thing, the second night, as it flew away from me, and I'm looking I'm going, well, might could be from another planet. I'm going, what the heck is going on here? What is that thing? Because there was no doubt it was there. And so all I was interested from 1975 on was to try to figure out um, what was that thing I saw. Somebody has to know what that thing was. I mean, I'm, I'm just an ordinary guy. There's got to be somebody who knows what's going on here. So I started to look for the highest level person I could find who might have the answers. That's why I we went after to the Canadian government. The Canadian government led to Dr. Eric Walker, who was the former president of Penn State University, who knew what was going on. We tried to get him to talk. He had 1,400 doctorate degrees. He was the chairman of the Defense Science Board, co-developer of the homing torpedo, uh, you know, assistant secretary of defense. He was, But he knew what was going on. And so he led to his papers. We are looking for his papers after he died. And he had indicated he was going to leave some papers at the Truman Library. And when I got to the Truman Library, I'm looking for Walker's papers. But it was at that point, I'm thinking, well, my goodness, you know, the president to—he's the most powerful guy in the world. He's got to know what's going on here. So I started to ask at the Truman Library, I said, well, what do you got on UFOs? And they said, well, you know, we just got these, uh, if, if you remember in 1952, the overflight of Washington, D.C., where the UFOs are flying over and all these, uh, this, they put the shoot down order. And all these telegrams are start inundating the White House in terms of you know, don't shoot the thing down, and so they had all these telegrams. But that's all they really had. And then so I'm thinking that's kind of weird. And so the, the Eisenhower Library was only a couple hours down the road going west. And so I went to the Eisenhower Library, and they said they had five documents. And uh, one was like a telegram. There was like five documents. I said, well. How many pages you got here? And he said, 28 million. And I'm thinking, something's wrong here, man. 28 million pages, and they got five documents on UFOs. And that started this search where I went for years, decades. And I went to almost all the presidential libraries. I grabbed all the documents I could. I photographed them. And I got some big stuff like the Rockefeller Initiative documents and stuff like that. And still it wasn't getting anywhere because there really is nothing in the presidential libraries. You can go there and you can be through the documents, except in the Clinton Library. Clinton's got a lot of stuff. But all the other libraries, there's nothing there. So um, I'm sort of spinning my wheels. It's 2012, and that's why I have this experience. You talked about this. Now I refer to it as a noetic experience. I used to call it a download experience, an enlightenment experience, but it's actually a noetic experience. And the definition of noetic is... It's an idea that comes. It's not a left brain rational analytical idea. It's not like two plus two, uh, you know, plus three, you know, minus one times six divided by three. It's not that kind of thing. It's it's basically something that appears in your head that you didn't it, it, you didn't figure it out. It just it just appeared there. Then and, and the prime example would be, you know, left brain music is um, you know practice read the music practice practice read the music, and right brain music uh, when you've got the the this sort of part of the brain, the left brain shut off, is you, Paul McCartney wakes up in the middle of the night and he's got this song in his head and he goes, oh, that's pretty cool. And he runs to the piano and he records this song and it becomes the song Yesterday, which is, you know, the, one of the most produced songs of the 20th century. It's that kind of thing. It comes and it comes with absolute certainty, which is the thing that's really hard to explain to people. So I have this experience in February 26, 2012, and it's in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm watching Colin Andrews give a lecture on crop circles. And what happened was I wasn't interested in crop circles. I wasn't interested in being in the room. I daydreamed, which is one of the ways you shut down the left brain. I'm really not there. I'm just sort of, you know, tuning out. And uh, everything shuts down, and I pick up the signal. And in it comes. And it basically says, this is all got to do with consciousness. That's what it's about. And it came with this absolute certainty. I said, I know how this works. It was like just, it happened almost instantaneously. And then I had a second experience, which was much more complex in about maybe 2016, 2017. I remember the exact place, the exact time, uh, you know, and, and what happened, where I was standing on the street and stuff, but I'm not exactly sure what year it was, but it was about this time of year, very cold. I had to take my glove off to write and I could feel it coming and I knew it's coming. There's Something's coming. And I started to write this stuff down and it went on for a couple of minutes and then I, it stopped them glove back on, start walking again, and then start to come again. So that basically sums up where I am. And so I've sort of moved the whole gamut. I've done the UFO thing. I did the government document thing. I got a message from an alien uh, about, um, about music, the messages in the music. I'm not a music guy. Uh, so I got dragged down that rabbit hole, and I ended up writing a book on music with no background in music. And it's basically all these weird stories about musicians who get songs in dreams or spontaneous songs how many musicians believe they've been abducted and uh, so I've done that and and I've spent um, some time working on uh, Mount Shasta the mission Rama group which I'm very fascinated with and these people claim to be uh, doing a really direct contact with the beings I got a message from an alien there that dragged me into that thing so that's basically what I've, I'm, I''m at but uh, basically I'd say what I'm working on right now is uh, the theory of reality. I mean, uh, what reality really is, that we've got everything all mixed up. That came from the second download experience that that I got, that people, uh, it's like William James said, people think that they're uh, th- uh, rationally analyzing stuff and all they're really doing is shuffling around their, their misconceptions and uh, uh, prejudices. So that basically sums up my whole career. Uh, nothing I really intended to do, just sort of get into one rabbit hole after another and um it's been exciting life as i say i believe this is a super bowl of all stories if you understand what's going on here uh you realize that you are playing in the biggest story of all times if you understand the underlying implications of what's actually going on
0: yeah and right now there's so much happening uh so much being revealed a lot of stuff that i never thought i'd see before um especially with the media talking about it um there's, you know, Tom DeLong teaming with up, uh, up with the army, um, all this sh- strangeness. What do you think is actually going on? Is this a slow drip disclosure? Is it preparation? Is it disinformation? Or is it all of the above?
1: No, it's a slow drip. I, I wrote about this first in 1989, and the same guys that are involved now, whether you're talking to Hal Putoff, Kit Green, uh, John Alexander, um, all these guys, they were known as the Avery, and I wrote about them first in 1989, 1990, when we were chasing Dr. Eric Walker around, and I said, watch these guys, now everybody suddenly found Jesus, and they're they are all excited about these guys, I've been talking about these guys for 30 years, and I said, yeah, you may not want to believe these guys, but listen to these guys, these guys know Ron Pandolfi, all these guys, they're all in this thing, and they, uh, they are basically a group of um, people who are either military, intelligence, or former government people who at one point during their career either had a, um, a UFO experience, like their experiencers. For example, Jim Semivan is an experiencer. He had the beings in his room. Uh, Gary Nolan is an experiencer. He had the beings in his room. Or you're um, somebody who's had a sighting like Eric, Dr. Eric Davis who had a very dramatic UFO sighting. Uh, On the day when he was graduating with his PhD or Jack Sarfati who gets a phone call from a a computer on a spaceship So a lot of it's that kind of stuff or it's the fact that you ran up against it like Kit Green where you run up against the phenomena in your job and You need to know more same as you and I I mean, it's fine to say I know this but everybody wants to know more so they're they're trying to figure it out and They're trying to uh, get to the bottom of it so I say they're all just ordinary people who have um, connections with the government or with intelligence. And what they do is they basically talk among each other. So whenever there's a, um, an opportunity for, intelligence or for information or money. So uh, basically you have uh, all of them were involved with Bill Moore in the 1980s. So Bill Moore had these contacts with the government. And they all realized Bill Moore's got these contacts. Let's talk to Bill Moore. What, what are you finding out? And then John Alexander comes along in 1985, and he has the Advanced Physics Theoretical Working Group. And they all appear there because they're, they're all trying to interact with each other. They're trying to figure this thing out. And then Joe Fermage comes along in the, in, the, in, the, in the 1990s, along with uh, uh, Bob Bigelow, who um, is interested in UFOs, but he's also interested in near-death studies. That was basically what, how NID started. It, it really wasn't UFOs. He's interested in consciousness. And uh, so they, they realized Bigelow's got money. He's paying people thousands of dollars a day as a consultant. And he, so let's go. Let's, let's go. Why would you not? Why would these guys not? And they would interact, and all the same guys would be picked Kit Green, you know, Al Put Off. Uh, all these guys and they all end up with, with Bigelow and they all end up with Firmage and then Firmage runs out of money and Bigelow shuts down NIDS and then uh, they end up with Tom DeLonge and, and I maintain Tom DeLonge is exactly the same story as Bill Moore. It's identical story. It is basically what I call, I wrote it up in a, a book called Managing Magic which appeared eight months before Tom DeLong's To the Stars was ever announced. I was talking about it. Everybody ignored it. People are still ignoring it and I said eight months before I said, this is what they're doing. And basically, if you listen to there's a, the, the key interview you got to listen to is an interview that Tom DeLonge did with Jimmy Church in 2016, where he basically talks about how he got into this thing. So people have Tom DeLonge. He's this guy. He's the Messiah. You know, he's going to lead us to the promised land. And he's, you know, he got a, this group all together and he's a real smart guy. And he may be a real smart guy, but I can guarantee you, I know how it started. And he tells that story in this Jimmy Church interview of 2016. Uh, he has a uh, friend who uh, has got a connection with Lock- working for Lockheed Skunk Works, and um, they know that Tom's really interested in this kind of stuff. And they invite him to the uh, Lockheed party in the parking lot and uh, ask him, "Do you want to introduce the president?" So Tom Blong says, "Okay, I'll introduce the president as long as I get five minutes with the guy." And he ends up in a Lockheed skiff. After he does his bit, they put him in a Lockheed skiff. He meets with the head scientist and with another guy. And then um, later on, Robert Weiss, the, head, the uh, head of Lockheed Skunk Works, comes in and they have this discussion, and Tom makes his pitch, I want you guys aren't getting anywhere, you, your uh, information may be good, but the young people aren't listening to you, you need me, I've got all these Twitter followers and Facebook followers, and I've got this and that, and I can get your message out, and at one point, if you listen to the interview, the one guy says, you know, this might actually just work. And so they talked to him and they set up the meeting. I don't care what any, make up all the stories you want about how it started. The actual story is told by Tom DeLong himself. He said, they said, uh, we'll get back to you. And he gets a uh, email or a phone call to I think it's an email two weeks later and says, you are to meet outside the Pentagon. And he goes there and there's two intelligence guys sitting in a room and they say to him, uh, you know, Things like this do not happen in the White House. They do not happen in Congress. They happen when guys like us decide to, pe- people like us decide to move the football down the field. So he meets these two intelligence guys. He didn't set up. They set it up. Then those intelligence guys send him to NASA. So Tom DeLong did not set up NASA. They set it up for him. And then he's there and they send him to Ames and he's at Ames and they send him to the general. And then the general starts f- uh, giving him all the rest of these people. So Tom DeLonge uh, may, may have discovered the first guy from Lockheed, but all the rest of the stuff was set up for him. And so this group was formed around him. And um, in the conversation that my friend Melinda Leslie had with Jim Semivan, uh, I knew this interview was going to take place. So she said, what do you want to, know about? What do you want to ask Jim Semivan? I said, I only got two questions. Uh, is this constitutional? Is this legal and constitutional? What Two of the Stars is doing? Or is this a rogue operation where people are running around with uh, leaked documents or whatever? And, 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 and in connection with that, is this thing green-lighted from the Pentagon? So that's basically all I want to know. Is this a legal operation that the Pentagon is running like Bill Moore, like all the operations before where they leak this material to Bill Moore? Or is this a rogue thing where people are running off with uh, classified documents and should be sitting in jail? And basically, uh, according to Melinda Leslie, she's asked it to Jim Semivan twice. And Jim Semivan is the co-director uh, of, of To the Stars. And he said, well, of course it's being greenlighted by the Pentagon. And as much as we can, I can try to tell people that, nobody catches on. They still think, well, you know, the government really doesn't know what's going on. Uh, Lou Elizondo uh, got these uh, videos out. And I say, come on. When you resign in disgust from the, from the Defense Department, they don't give you the videos for a goodbye present. Videos, when you get the videos out, someone's letting the videos out. There's, there's thousands of videos. They're probably all unclassified. That's how they sort of protect them. But So this is an operation. I don't care what they say. This is an operation. It's a slow drip thing where they're leaking it out. But the guys that are in it are legitimate players, and they are guys who are, for whatever interest, they may have a, a patent. They want to get a patent or they have a security clearance they have to protect or um, or they're just really interested. But I don't believe it's bad guys. I, I've known a lot of these guys for many years, and they're just curious guys like you and I. They're just different from you and I in that they have security clearances, and they've seen some stuff you and I haven't seen. And that's why I say it's very important to listen to them. So when Eric Davis says they shut down the crash saucer uh, recovery program in 1989, I say listen to Eric Davis. He's got a security clearance. He's former intelligence with the U.S. Air Force. He's really interested in the subject. And I think you should be listening to those people, uh, which people don't. They want to sort of pick and choose what they've got. But So it's a slow-drip disclosure. They've done it over and over again. And so when I saw the Tom DeLonge thing, and I, I think it's in the book, I just said, oh, no, they're, they're doing it again. I mean, they're doing the same thing. And, it's exactly, and what you get is a guy who believes he's a messiah. So I, I, I named a couple of these guys as messiahs. It, uh, Stephen Greer believes all these got a thousand witnesses leaking in material, and it's like you have not got the money to vet these people. He, he, uh, he, they can put in bad witnesses, all they're doing is throwing mud in the water, and they're feeding material to Stephen Greer because he believes he's the Messiah. He's here to bring people disclosure. Tom DeLong thinks he's here. He even talks about his name. His name is the, the truth bringer, or something like that. If his Thomas, whatever his middle name is, Michael, or whatever. He talked about it one time. So these people believe the same as Bill Moore. I remember Bill Moore. I've I dealt with him in the 1980s when the MJ12 document was being released and all these kind of documents. And I knew Bill. And I remember when he finally pulled out. He was he was shattered. His ego was shattered when people wouldn't listen to him. He wasn't the big the big kahuna anymore because of the everybody was accusing him of hoaxing these documents. And so he left the left the field. And I went to interview him at the very end. And I said. Can I do an interview? He said, look, Grant, we've been friends, but here's the situation. I, I didn't figure this thing out. You're never going to figure it out. Give it up. And so he walked away. He figured, I, I'm the only guy that can figure this thing out. And that's how they set up Bill Moore. They said, You're the only guy knows what you're talking about. Two guys approached him right after he wrote the Roswell book. So what you do is you have people who can get the message out, like Tom DeLong can get the message out to people. Or Bill Moore. Bill Moore, people don't realize. He wrote the, the, the book, um, um, the Roswell, the first Roswell book uh the Roswell incident, which uh, made millions. It was sold millions of copies. It was a huge book. And he was the first sort of guy that was legitimate, actually had some witnesses because before nineteen eighty, there was no talking about crash saucers. People don't realize I mean there's there was no discussion about that at all. It was it was totally new. And he had these witnesses on the ground and intelligence people and so they set him up and he could carry the message and he did carry the message and they've done it over and over again. So it's the same same scenario all the time. So the material you're getting is um, accurate and what they do is they they protect the material by changing the document. So you're not r- leaking legitimate documents because if you do, you end up in jail for like five years for like one page document or whatever. You can't leak legitimate documents. So what I believe that they often do is you change, or alter the document even one, one period and then you can say the document's a hoax. It's, no, it's not a real document because you've altered the document. So they're, they're controlling it. It's a gradual release. And as Jim Semivan says, of course it's being green by the Pentagon. This is not coming up by accident. They sort of want it out. And to, to, to finish this sort of thought, which now I've changed in the last year, I would think that you may have actually seen disclosure. Uh, I have come to a conclusion after many, many years, four decades plus at this thing, I really don't think they know anything. I, I really don't. And the, the prime example that you can take is there's a debate. That sometimes you get in these email chains. There's a debate between uh, physicists who are talking about the, the Tic Tac and the how do you fly the Tic Tac and what's the stuff. And it's all mathematical stuff, and they're fighting. And Eric Davis is fighting with uh, with um, um, Jack Sarfati. And you have uh, Brian Josephson who won the Nobel Prize for uh, superconductivity and uh, quantum tunneling and stuff like that. So it's a high level list. And they're and basically what they're doing is, the, you remember this piece that now has sort of been discounted, this layered piece of metal with the bismuth magnesium uh, piece. Um, and they're talking about levitating this piece. And they're fighting about who knows how to do it. And they're saying, no, you're you're wrong, I'm right, and stuff. And I remember having a conversation with Eric Davis, and he believed that Sir Fatty was right. And I said, you know what? It really doesn't matter who is right. Basically, if two top-level guys, and if physics is a very small world. I mean, high-level physicists, they all know each other. It's not like there's you know thousands of physicists, high-level guys that nobody knows who they are. They all know each other. And if these two guys, high-level physicists, are arguing about levitating some little two-ounce piece of metal off the table, we ain't got nothing. I mean, so a lot of the stuff that's out there, you know, we're flying to other star systems and all that kind of stuff is I think just military bravado. It, it, it's, uh, just stuff people want to put out. I think you may have seen disclosure. Yes, we have bodies. Yes. We have crafts on the ground. Yes. We, um, uh, we've got videos. Uh, UFOs are are real. It's coming from somewhere else. Uh, but beyond that really nothing. And I'll I'll give you an example of that. Um, Kit Green had had made a comment. Um, this is on a board about 12 years ago. He said, um, Uncle, I guess referring to Uncle Sam, and the intelligence community are clueless. There's a meeting that took place in 1987. This is just before they supposedly shut the, down the crash saucer program. Uh, Jacques Valet, Hal Putoff, and Kit Green. Now, these are top level guys. Uh, Hal Putoff and Kit Green. Probably have the uh, maybe the longest-held top-secret SEI clearances in the United States. They've been they've been going at this thing since 1969, and uh, they had a meeting in Denny's restaurant, and they basically put out the question: uh, "There's a lot of weird stories going around. A lot of people making claims. What do we know for sure about the UFO phenomenon?" You got to remember, these are three high-level people, and they're saying, "What do we know for sure?" And it became known as the core story. So, what's the core story? What do we know for sure? And what they came up with. Yes, we are being interacted by some sort of intelligence. Uh, we have crash material. There's been at least one crash. and uh, the third thing was we aren't getting anywhere. So basically, I'm sort of pulling away from the field in terms of saying that if you want to know this thing, you've got to move towards consciousness. It is not as phys- I say it's going to be a lot less physical than people think it is. It's going to be a lot more spiritual than people think it is. People are not going to be happy about that. People want toys. They want free energy. They want, you know, let's make some money out of this deal. Let's, you know, bomb the Russians and the Chinese with these this new inventions and stuff. I think um, it may be that basically, yeah, they know the TikTok was real. The videos are real. All that stuff is real. They've got bodies. they got crafts. But until you hear them start talking about consciousness as being the basis of this whole thing, I don't think they have anything. As long as they're talking nuts and bolts, they are completely on the wrong train, going the wrong way.
0: Hello, friends. I want to introduce you to my friend, Justin Padini. Justin is a self-proclaimed online court jester, comedian, and artist who uses his gift of humor to speak truth to power. Justin shares countless jokes freely online, and they're definitely not woke jokes, So please be sure to have on your big boy pants when you view Justin's content. He is also a featured speaker on the One Great Work Network and promotes other activists doing the great work. Justin is looking to reach like-minded individuals to promote the message of freedom and grow his network. Follow Justin on Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and the One Great Work Network. That's Justin Padini, P-E-D. I and I all of his links are right in the description that's exactly what I was just gonna ask you about um, because you know the more I research this the more I look into it I agree with you a hundred percent the nuts and bolts fall away the physical aspect it kind of goes away and it becomes more of like an interdimensional type thing um, yeah. I'm not sure exactly what it is but Uh, consciousness seems to have a big part. It seems to be connected to all of this. Um, Tell us a little bit more about what's your thoughts on what this phenomenon really is. Well, I would think that you'd go to Jacques Vallée. Now, I remember Jacques
1: Vallée, I used to think he was a crazy man. And now I'm basically saying Jacques Vallée is the guy you got to go to to understand this. And he basically points out, uh, which I've already known, I, I talk about patterns in ufology that um, uh, the problem that some people have is that they think they get into the UFO field, they've been in it for five years or 10 years. And they think, you know, this is the way it's been. It's always been this way. And I keep, I uh, keep trying to impress upon people. you got to realize what happens now didn't happen even 10 years or 20 years ago. It's almost like the intelligence behind the phenomena is flipping the pages of a book and it's changing. So if you go back, um, 20, 25 years ago, if you remember Stanton Friedman used to talk about the, the trace cases where the, the UFO would land, at leave burn the burn the soil and it would leave pod pod marks, three tra- uh, pod marks. That hasn't happened for 20 years at least. It stopped, and it used to be the biggest thing going. They were landing all over the place. There was little guys running around with rods, you know, and stuff like that outside the craft. That doesn't happen. There are no humanoid type cases outside of crafts anymore. That that's all gone away. There was there was no crop circles until 1983. Before it was all these landing trace cases. And if you go back to the prime example that illustrates this, where you get into the Jacques Belay idea, and he goes into the ferry stuff, and you know, this is, all they're doing is, is using our um, understanding of the world, playing off that. So if you go back to 1890s, there was this huge flop of, of airship sightings in the western United States, and it's like thousands of sightings. But the sightings, what were people seeing? They weren't seeing metal crafts with windows and little gray aliens looking out the windows and stuff like that. They were seeing wooden ships with propellers and guys hanging off ropes and stuff like that. That's what they were seeing. And you, you can see that it's almost like we're part of the manifestation of whatever we're into. So now we're into space, you know, space travel and stuff. So they're playing it up like they're space travel. And and so you, you see these crossovers and that's where I got into this work on on consciousness, like I'm doing a book on what's called contact modalities, where I say it's all the same thing. And this is a goes to um, the idea that whether it's channeling or mediumship or UFO abduction, or all this kind of stuff, when you get to the bottom line of this thing, you start seeing these crossovers that it's the same thing. It's just manifesting different that people would uh, whatever you have. Uh, and so people think that, Uh, this is part of my download I only give it into but the the download I got was is the world made out of nuts and bolts or is it made out of consciousness If it's made out of nuts and bolts that's one world it's made out of consciousness everything's going to change all the rules change if it's uh, in this we so we have this idea about separation so it said is is everything separate this is what we're taught we're random uh, biological robots in a random meaningless universe we're just you know you know particles floating around and the only time anything's going to happen is when we interact and hit against each other or talk to each other something like that there has to be near interaction otherwise nothing's going to happen so we believe in this thing of separation that it's me and you are separate and that is to me the 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 beginning of all of evil is the belief in separation so you have this separation idea so we have the idea that the ufo is separate from us and when you get to the oneness thing so it's separation or is it oneness if it's oneness everything changes so, if you suddenly realize that you're part of what you're seeing, that there is no screen and there is no um, little speakers inside your head, that what you are seeing, everything you see is goes through your consciousness, and you get into this really weird thing about what are we really seeing, is it really physical, is there time and space, and we, you start to realize that we've got it all sort of screwed up, We don't, and, and that maybe that's what they're basically teaching us, is moving us to that step of reality and realizing that it's not made out of nuts and bolts, it's not random. And I got this very long, involved, um, noetic experience that sort of pointed this stuff out to me. But that's what people think. So we think that, you know, the, the beings are, um, are, are an event and we're the victim and then we get grabbed upon the ship. And there's, a, there's actually an interview that I recommend people watch and that's, it's a debate between uh, Bud Hopkins and John Mack from Harvard. And this is, goes back many years. So they're at Boston and they're, they're having this debate. And at one point, uh, John Mack says, you know, Bud, and this is the thing, because John Mack had, uh, his were all sort of, he saw it as a very spiritual enlightenment experience, and of course, Bud Hopkins said they were intruders, uh, they should go leave us alone, it's a bad experience, there's nothing good about this experience, and that sort of thing. So, John Mack at one point says, you know, Bud, so it's really strange. He says, you know, I'm the psychiatrist here. Now, I'm the psychiatrist, you'd think I'd be getting all the real bad, crazy ones. But actually, I'm getting all these spiritual enlightened people that are looking for enlightenment, and you're getting all the bad ones. And then he said, maybe that has more to do with you and I than it does with the, with the aliens. And that's this whole idea that we, we have to start to realize that maybe what we're seeing, we are in a way manifesting what we're seeing. And that's when you get in and you start looking at stuff like that. Then you start looking at people that have figured it out. For example, when Tom DeLong goes in that skiff with Lockheed Skunk Works, just before Robert Weiss, the, vice, the president, walks out, he's talking to the head scientist, and he's talking to another guy. So this head scientist is saying to him, okay, I just want to know, how does it work? Uh, how do these things operate? And Tom gives some guess. He doesn't say what it is. And the, and the head scientist says, yeah, it's pretty good. Anything else? And then Tom says, I think consciousness is involved. And the head scientist says, now you're talking. And he said, for forty-five minutes, that's all the guy wanted to talk about was consciousness. So you can see, at least at Lockheed Skunk Works, the head scientist level, they have sort of figured this thing out. The other one is 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 um, people have this idea that Bigelow is this you know evil you know guy who's got you know these uh, hangers and they got flying saucers in there all this crash material and whatever. And if you look at Jacques Vallée's latest book, book number four, Forbidden Science, Volume Four. He talks about the beginning of NIDS, where the beginning of NIDS was, we're going to work on UFOs and we're going to work on uh, life after death. And one of the scientists that was there at this first panel meeting said, what are we picking those subjects for? Like, like why don't we just do ESP and Sasquatch? And he was really up, sort of upset that they are going to do this life after death thing. And Bigelow had his son die at a young age and his grandson die at a young age. And he was fascinated in this survival of death. And John Alexander, who has a degree in thanontology, a phd in in death studies also talks about this the fact that the, the ultimate mystery you got to figure is 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 there life after death that will solve all the mysteries because it's all tied in it's all the same thing and so what you see is is bigelow putting up 3.7 million dollars to the university of nevada las vegas for consciousness studies so you can see he figured it out and that's where we're getting more and more people the qu- the quantum physics people are 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 starting to move in that direction where you realize, you know, that the, the, the particle can go through two slits at the same time. It goes, and once there's an observer, then it, ta- it changes from a, you know, a, a, a wave to a particle and all these weird sort of things. And that's basically, I think, uh, I do a lecture called The Theory of Wow, uh, where I basically look at the whole UFO phenomena and I go after all the stuff and I go through everything. I'll go through UFOs. Uh, cattle mutilations, crop circles. I go through the metals that they found and stuff like that, and I go, you know what? You know, in the end, I think they're not doing anything. Like, if you look, there's nothing material about a, a, a inside a flying saucer. There is no leather couches. There are no chandeliers. There's no designer clothes. There's no jewelry. There's nothing. There's, and and you start looking at like, so what are they really doing? And then you, you come to the conclusion. I, I called it the theory of wow where all they really want you to do is go, wow, what's going on here? Uh, This is not making sense. And it's trying to break that materialistic paradigm. So the, the ultimate one is, why do UFOs have lights on them? So you can see them. We don't have lights on our craft. They have lights. John Lennon had big uh, marquee uh, light bulbs on it and a red light on the top. You don't need big light bulbs on the side of the flying saucer to fly through interstellar space. They have the lights so you can see them. The same as mine. It was this plasma thing, and it was like, wow, I'm just looking at this thing. And then and then you look at the metals. This I even got a request now to provide some metal. I guess it's going back up through Valet or whoever to, to the stars or whatever. About the Canadians, the Canadians were into this in the 1950s, and it's like the metal thing. And I'm going like, "Come on, folks! I mean, do you think that a, a flying saucer comes across the galaxy, and then these little pieces start falling off the flying saucer? Come on, give it a shake. They're not flying off; they're, they're they're dropping this stuff. And I even asked Jacques Vallée, uh, not Jacques Vallée, I asked Hal Puthoff. I said, "Come on! I mean, you had this stuff in the lab in the 1970s when Yuri Geller was there, when they're doing the remote viewing. This stuff is falling." A uh, ports and manifestations stuff is falling in the lab from out this outside the ceiling and just this weird stuff going on It's the same thing. I'm going like the metal has got to be a port material They just want you to go. Wow. Cause, and then people say well, we should analyze it. We should analyze this material Well, where, Where's that going to get you the same way? UFO say or uh, videos get you is you does you establish? Okay, the video is real. I don't think we made it Okay, so Where do we go from here? And and people are always trying to reprove the UFO thing. So they want the metal. Like, let's prove it. Let's look at uh, even the apports. I've got some of these apports, uh, piles of these stories in the last year that I've gathered. And people say, well, we should have one of these apports uh, analyzed. Maybe the isotopes will be all messed up. And it's like, yeah, maybe. So, so what? So if 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 it's it just means it's weird metal, and and Kit Green will say, well, it could have been made in a black, a, a super secret black lab, or you could say it's it doesn't come from here. Okay, so what do we go from here now? That's what people are doing. They're trying to reprove the fact that UFOs are here. And I guess my advantage was that I had that right in my face in 1975. I don't have to prove they're here. I know I never went down that route of trying to reprove, but that's what the 99% of the UFO community, that's what they're doing. They're trying to prove the UFO thing. So like, what do we need? We need this evidence. And so what? If we'd established, for example, that it's real, the government stands up and says, okay, it's for real, which they have done. Say, okay, it's for real. Okay, so what happens? We all have a big party. We give each other high fives. We drink a couple of wobbly pops, have a good time. And tomorrow morning, you're up to go to work. It doesn't solve anything. What you have to do is establish, yes, it's for real, and go with that assumption and get to the next step. We've been doing the, is it real thing since 1947. I knew immediately it was for real. So I was always on the next thing of like, okay, so where are they from and what are they doing? And that leads to the, the whole thing that I've maintained in the last couple of years, and I still haven't got the. most people don't believe me, is I say, if you want to know what the UFO phenomena is all about, you, you assume that it's for real, and you talk to the people who are interacting with the phenomena. Forget about the videos, forget about the metal, forget about all that nonsense, it's for real. Now we got to get to how, what, what are they here for, and there is a whole lot of people, who are actually interacting with the phenomena. And when you start to talk to those people, you start to see very direct patterns of what they're being told, what the important things are, why they're here. That's the only thing I really am interested in now is the message, who these people are, what, what it is, what it's all about, and you cannot learn that from a photo. You cannot learn that from a piece of metal. You cannot do that by going out and sky watching. That's all just entertainment type stuff where, you know, it's kind of cool. You see something fly by. It's like, wow, that's pretty cool. And it's almost like I go back to the analysis or the analogy that in the end of the, uh, the 19th century, what we were doing is we were basically doing the same sort of thing, except we were doing it with uh, uh, mediumship. So instead of, you know, sky watching, we'd bring in a, a medium and we'd levitate tables and we'd talk to dead people, uh, you know, with Ouija boards and stuff like that. And it's just like entertainment. So you're rich people, you've got nothing better to do. You know, there's lousy TV. So let's talk about UFOs and look at UFO photos. And it's it's really cool and it's exciting, but it doesn't give you an answer. You, you have to talk to the experiencers. And the vast majority of the UFO community, I think, is still in the in the box where they say, well, it's just anecdotal. These people, they just believe they're around a flying saucer. And yeah. And you believe your physical being and you believe that you have these beliefs and those beliefs. Yeah, it's all belief. i all agree. It's all belief. But when you get these people, why would, if, if for example, uh, 40% of all experiences say at one point they knew the answer to everything in the universe and say they got mathematical, scientific, or technical material in their head that they didn't learn in school. And I've talked to a lot of the people in both groups. So if somebody says, at one point, I knew the answer to everything in the universe, don't you think it behooves us to at least try to pick the lock and to figure out is that true? And can we hack into that thing? And that all the information may be in a field instead of doing the thing like, oh, let's go do a skywatch and let's, uh, you know, see if uh, something flies by. That that's not getting us anywhere. You've got to talk to the people who are interacting with the phenomena.
0: Now, when you look at these personal experiences of people who have been abducted, who have had contact experiences, and they describe different beings, different races. Yeah. Is this just a projection of what they want us to see? Sure. Well,
1: we already know. We know for a fact, and that it's an absolute fact. I mean, if you've, if you've interviewed Mike Cleland, who's the owl guy, I mean, we know they can screen image anytime they want. I mean, I, I have a girl from Boulder. I, every time I get on a, rabbit hole meeting with her where there's a bunch of experiences there i say candace tell them the rabbit rabbit story and she tells this story about you know going down this road and there's rabbits in the road and it takes an hour to go down this road and, and the rabbits in front of the car and stuff like that and and uh just this really bizarre story about this moves a couple of feet and then she moves and it moves and it's two o'clock in the morning she's in wyoming she's a singer playing at a bar and all this kind of stuff and then her, her boyfriend says, you know, Candace, I think, uh, I think you better be regressed. And of course, it wasn't a rabbit at all. And, and they'll appear as, as owls. They'll appear as deer. Uh, they'll appear as all sorts of stuff. Or you'll see them screen imaging inside the ship. They'll pick up a little kid, and the kid freaks out. And immediately, they turn into doctors. And they can do this instantaneously. Instantaneously, they can change into whatever it is. So they can appear as whatever they want. And there's if you've interviewed Sherry Wilde, who's an experiencer, pretty major experiencer out of Wisconsin, she was dealing with a, a being by the name of Da. And she said to Da, she said, are you actually an alien? I mean, is that what you actually look like? And he said, no, not really. And then she said, well, what do, do you come with this ugly-looking gray thing? And then he said, ugly-looking gray thing? Do you ever look in the mirror? He said, you got those big teeth. Every time you smile, we think you're going to eat us. And so that kind of thing where a lot of people have asked the alien, are you actually an alien? And, and the, the prime example that would show that it's not the physical thing you think it is, um, I have on my YouTube channel, I have an interview I did with um, uh, uh, Joseph uh, Ronin out of Israel, and he talks about how the beings leave. And so the beings, he said, when they left his room, they, would, they gathered in a circle and they held hands, and they started to move around in this circle, rotating in this circle, and they went faster and faster and faster and faster, and they turned into light. And then the the ball of light got smaller and smaller and smaller and there's one out there. So the question is, if you're believing in flesh and blood aliens, is it a a flesh and blood alien or is it a ball of light? And if it's a ball of light, does he eat bacon, eggs, toast and coffee in the morning? So you can see that these beings can come into the physical world. They can manifest as physical beings looking like, like whatever they want to look like and then they go back into the field, we think that we're, we're here, nothing changes, it's, we're, everything's flat, um, um, uh, physical, and consciousness is just an epiphenomenon of the brain, it really doesn't exist, it's just out there, it, it doesn't have any weight, it, it has no sort of thing, and what you're starting, and, and what my download experience says, if it's a physical world, yeah, that's one world, but if it's consciousness world, it's a completely different world. So if consciousness is basic, it's all made out of consciousness. It's all Uli stuff, as one pr- quantum physicist said. So consciousness makes the physical world. And once you're in that field, if you're in that higher vibrating field or what, how, whatever that thing is that they're in, then you can come in here and you can move back. And the, the prime analogy of how I think the whole thing works is it's like an ocean. So we're in the ocean and there's this expression. Darkness is not a thing unto itself. Darkness is just the absence of light. So we are at the bottom of the ocean and we are in that dark. We have, you know, we, we think and that we, this world we're in, you know, where we have flesh and blood and, and nuts and bolts and all this kind of stuff. And then from time to time, what will happen is somebody will be able to channel, do mediumship, have an out-of-body experience, uh, have an abduction experience. And suddenly, they get moved up in the water and they come out of the darkness and they get closer to the light. And the closer you get to the light, the more you can see, the more answers you can get. So this is the whole idea is that we're stuck down here. We think that everybody lives in the dark. There is nothing outside the dark. And just because we can't we can't go up. But you can, and that's this idea that 40% of all experiencers say at one point they knew the answer to everything in the universe. So you can get up very high towards the light. And you can see everything. So the beings are up in the higher level of the water. They can come down into the darkness where we are and then move back again. We just think we're stuck in in the darkness here and that it's all darkness. There's nothing outside the darkness. And that's the way we get because that's the left brain ego says, I'm the center of the universe. Um, If I'm not experiencing it, it doesn't experience. But you could have piles of people who have these experiences, especially the near-death experience or the uh, uh, you know the encounter with the beings, and then you see the beings. Uh, the, the the if you've interviewed the guy who has the big catalog, he has twenty thousand uh, humanoid beings. So of course I went to him and I said, okay, so how many different alien types are there? And he said, well, I don't know I really counted, but I would say there's got to be over a thousand because you're going to get a lot of greys or reptilians, and stuff like that. And the other thing is, so you have a thousand different beings at least. And so the question is, is there a thousand different or are they manifesting? Because one of the patterns that people never bring pick, bring up, that I always bring up, is the fact that you never get a, a person who's had a, an abduction experience, whatever you want to call it, uh, you just call them experiencers, who's only seen one being. So they'll start with, uh, you know, tall, like Chris Blutsoe, tall, seven foot, bluish green guys that look like greys except they're bluish green. And then he, re, he runs into this shining lady and... Every, every, in every incident, the, the beings start to change. And you see all these beings sort of working together. And you're wondering, like, you know, how, you saw greys, and then you saw reptilians, and then you saw mantis people, and then you see uh, human-type people. And it's almost like all these, these people are working together, which would make sense. In the field, they're all working together. And that part of what it is is, is what you're manifesting. And w- there's um, a famous Hollywood guy that was an experiencer told me, that what he was told was when they come in and they work inside your brain, they can only use what's inside your, your mind. So if you're in fear, they're going to use fear to teach you a lesson. If you're into love, they're going to use love to teach you a lesson that they can't teach you stuff that isn't in your head. So you, people have to realize that, that you are part of, of, of what the experience is. So you even look at it in, in the idea, is there one life or is there multiple lives? So people think there's separation and there's, there's us, we're the good guys, and then there's evil aliens, and I always say, be careful what you wish for because if it's multiple lives – what happens if you come back as the evil alien next time? Are you now evil for all eternity? And you've got to realize we are them and they are us. We are all one. And it's this reincarnation thing where everybody's playing this little game to learn lessons. And I, I firmly believe that the stuff that I've been given um, makes, sense, makes sense, but it also comes with this noetic quality where I was sort of given it. It's not something that I sort of figured out. Almost nothing that I got, I figured out. I got dragged down given messages, really weird sort of stuff. And I've just sort of followed the, the flow, so to speak. And I, I'll get very direct synchronicities when I get in a field. Like I just got into the apport thing, which I guess we can maybe talk about apports and manifestations. When I, I didn't even know what the word meant. When I got it, I said, oh, I should check this. Maybe I'll check this thing out. And I check it and I find out there's a collection of apports at the University of Manitoba where I worked for 37 years. Is that kind of synchronicity where you go, I think I better study this thing. This is pretty direct synchronicity in terms of what's the chances. There's only two collections in the whole world. One of them is at my university. And so I got into this whole thing about stuff that falls out of the sky, you know, metals that fall or coins or, uh, stuff that reappears some really bizarre stuff. Even like my, I give a presentation at, um, Laughlin, Nevada, which was, uh, I got my own experience. I mean, where they took my PowerPoint presentation and I've done a lot of PowerPoint. I say I'm as good as any, at anybody at doing PowerPoint. I've done it for 15 years and they grabbed my PowerPoint presentation, 190 slides. They doubled up, um, 40 slides, 30, 30 to 40 slides. They made four slides disappear. They moved the audios from those four slides to other slides, which is impossible when you embed audio and video on, on the thing. Um, they. Um, what else did they do? Uh, the slides were out of order. It was just the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And um, now, even my original. When I went back, I was. I'm doing a, a PowerPoint presentation. When I went back, to look at the original, it was still on my computer, which was pristine and perfect. Uh, even that one. Now, when I turned the computer off, and it came back on the Monday, I was going to review it. It's the same as the one that I downloaded onto the the computer in Laughlin, Nevada, at the conference hall. Just really bizarre when you see that kind of stuff where uh, all the slides are distorted. It was just the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. And that's the kind of weird stuff I'm in now where you start to wonder, like, why are they doing this? Like, why are they doing this weird stuff? And I think it comes down to this thing they're just trying to raise consciousness by getting you to realize you are not the center of the universe. There is more more to the world than this little physical thing you think is going on here. And they're just trying to awaken people to make them go, what the heck's going on here? Why is this happening? And the more people think about it, the more they see all this weird stuff, they realize there's something very significant, and we have got everything all mixed up as to how reality actually works.
0: Now, you recently got a hold of Stanton Friedman's files. Um, I know there is a ton of stuff that that you have to go through. Um, So far, what are some of the, I guess, just a few of the more interesting things that you have come across?
1: Okay, um, so you should give people background on how big this collection is. Um, There was um, 15 pallets. So we're talking 40 archives boxes on a pallet. There was 15 pallets plus a the computer, which would have a lot of files on it, um, which is um, in addition to that. I photographed um, 6,000 pages. I went through 15 small archives boxes out of 22 that were available. Uh, there's the archivist who is Joanna, who brought the collection to the univer- to the Provincial Archives in Fredericton, New Brunswick, is now estimating three to four years to get this, this collection all put together. It's a lot of material and a lot most of it wasn't filed. So um, I went through the 15 boxes and this is the stuff that he had in his collection that was in file folders, in, in, in um, uh, filing cabinets. So the, the material I, I was looking for was this 1980 stuff from Bill Moore. So I'm looking for all the background conversations because Bill Stanton Friedman was famous for the MJ-12 document that was released in 1987. And the document is phony, no matter what anybody says it's phony, but everything, everything it's talking about is real. So that's what they do is they put an idea out, they put it out through a fake document, everybody runs for cover, they say the doc, document's a hoax, it's all disinformation, everybody runs and the idea of MJ-12 gets out. So Stan worked on this and so a lot of the collection has to do with uh, his defense of that. Uh, and I was trying to get the conversations with Bill Moore as to what was going on behind the scenes. Um, and I got some of it, but some of the, most of the stuff I haven't read. Cause I'm, I keep, I got so much material to do. Like I'm doing the support thing. I'm working. I got seven books that are in final editing stages and stuff I like got. So even though I got the 6,000 pages, it takes a long time to go through 6,000 pages when you've got, you're not really working on it. You're doing other stuff. So I've gone through maybe 300 pages, but I can tell you the highlights of, of what's going to be there. Stan was very much into the MJ 12 things. So there's a lot of that. He spent a lot of time fighting with skeptics, so there's a lot of cor- correspondence between uh, Michael Shermer, uh, the great Randy, uh, Phil Klass, and Stan was arguing back and forth. And This is going by snail mail. This is not email. This is in the days when we had to do everything by letter, you know, send a letter and wait for two weeks for an answer and stuff like that. So um, there was that. Then there was the Area 51, which is pretty interesting stuff. Stan was dead set against the uh, Bob Lazar as being uh, a big fraud and stuff like that. I worked on it. I have a different opinion. I'm not going to get into it. I, I wrote it up in, in two different books, and um, George Knapp thought my version was pretty close to what he thought was going on. But anyway, he he. so all the files from the Lazar thing are there. So all the court documents when he got the pandering charge in 91, um, all, all the stuff on his his background, and stuff like that, and most interesting, and I've I got to be sensitive about how I do it, but there was this correspondence going back and forth between George Knapp and Stan Friedman because Stan Friedman was the big kahuna and uh, George Knapp was trying to convince him uh, why he believed this kind of stuff. A lot of inside talk as to what was going on and stuff like that. And these were like letters which were on both sides would be three, four-page letters where they were detailing all the stuff. Um, There's probably just the Knapp correspondence with Friedman has probably got to be 100 200 pages it's, it's quite a bit of material so i'm going to release all that material the area 51 stuff the one document that i did find there that i was going for uh is um i'm i'm not sure if i put it up on the internet yet but it has to do with the cuban uh incident in 1967 i knew stan had been involved with this back in the 80s i'd heard that he was involved so i was one of the things that luckily he had filed so i, I when i talked to the archivist I said, yeah, I want you to get his FBI file and I'll talk about that in a sec, but I want this Cuban story. So basically what happens is in 1987, Stan gets a letter from a, no, no, he gets a phone call from a guy. I don't, didn't, uh, I didn't see the, uh, no, I saw Stan's letter back to him, but he didn't send a letter. He missed a phone. So anyway, this guy puts out this story and here's the story, uh, a Naval, a facility in Florida is um, part of his job was to monitor Cuban communications, air traffic communications. So they pick up one day, they pick up uh, Cuban communication that there's a UFO coming into Cuban airspace. Now, remember, we knew this back in 87. We knew this story, what had happened. But I wanted to see what was in Stan's files as to what he really knew about it. So um, it's 87, this guy contacts And basically what happens is they they pick up the communication. They scramble two MiG-21 jets and they intercept this thing as it comes into Cuban airspace. NSA, this naval facility, is listening in on this whole thing. And um, they ask it to identify itself. The craft does not identify itself. And then uh, the pilot is given the instruction to lock on and take it down. So um, the pilot responds that he's locked on and he's about to fire and then the communication has the back guy. So there's a, a guy in the front and a guy in flying in behind him. And you hear the guy in the back start yelling and screaming, he's gone, he's gone. And they, the plane just poof, gone like that, just disintegrates as he's about to shoot the, the, the craft. And so um, they picked this up and um, somehow, I guess this guy leaked it to Stanton Friedman. So Stanton Friedman gave it to a guy by the name of Bob Pratt back in, in the day. Bob Pratt worked for the National Choir. He was a... Uh, Fantastic reporter. I did work with him. A lot of people did. They had un- National Enquirer had unlimited amounts of money, and this guy would do these uh, investigations and provide us all the transcripts of the interviews and stuff. So they gave it to Bob Pratt. Bob Pratt filed the FOIA because he could. They didn't care what the government was going to charge him for the search fees. So uh, they come back and say classified. Uh, you know, national security. We can't talk about this. We're not going to comment or whatever. And so Bob gives up, and then they give it to a guy by the name of Todd Zeckel, I believe. was, I think it was Todd Zeckel. He ran CAUSE, which was the uh, Citizens Against UFO Secrecy that sued the CIA in the 1980s for documents. And he was kind of a hardball guy. So they gave it to Todd, and Todd just phoned up NSA, and he said, "Uh, we want these documents, and if I don't get the documents, I'm phoning the Cuban embassy. And a couple hours later, the FBI showed up at his door and scared the living daylights out of him. And this went back to Stan, and Stan was uh, protecting this guy's identity. And there was uh, Stan was doing this by phone. Now, what I learned at the archives is that Stan taped his phone calls. So um, they they're processing this material, all the audio, and there's a lot of audio, video that that Stan had. He had tapes from Merv Griffin in the 1960s on these big, huge. I don't even know, you know how they get the how they're going to get the stuff off the. But they say they can process all this stuff and and reproduce it. So they're Uh, doing all this kind of stuff and um, so uh, I'm looking to be going back to look for this Cuban um, uh, thing the other big thing that I had was I knew through Bill Moore in the 1980s 1988 that um, and and they provided me some extra material that Stan knew in 1983 that he was under investigation by the FBI and this is before the MJ-12 document leaked I guess that do with the Roswell crash so they were under investigation, and Stan was asking the big skeptic, Phil Class, uh who worked for Aviation Week and Space Technology, talk to your buddies there and ask them, uh, why, why are we under investigation? And so Stan, uh, Phil Klaas tells them to file an FOA. They file an FOA, and both Stan and Bill Moore had their FBI files basically withheld. And Bill Moore had uh, 61 pages, and there was only 55 pages uh, that was withheld B one national security exemption totally withheld at at the secret level. So the question is, if if there's nothing to the UFO phenomena, why have you got some uh, guy by the name of Bill Moore who's a school teacher who has 51 or whatever it was pages uh, B one national security totally exempt from any disclosure? And so Stan had the same thing. I talked to him in January before he died, and I said, Stan, your file your, hel- your fi- file was withheld as well. And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, how many pages did we withhold?" And he, goes, "I don't know. Was, I don't know." Was, he, he wasn't very specific. But that was what I was looking for. And we, so we've recovered a lot of material uh, on Stan from the FBI. And what you see is a lot of uh, stuff, blanked out pages, which indicates Stan was onto something. That that he had material. Uh, it, it validates the fact that UFOs are real. There's, they're not going to, you know, do a B one national security exemption. I um, mean, if they're just Making up documents or hoaxing or just you know playing as a hobby UFO stuff. There's there's something to this, and the fact that these two major figures in 1980 ba- basically could not get their FBI file uh, proves that. So that's basically uh, what it was. There's a lot of letters from um, uh, people. I have to be very careful because they're going to allow me to produce all this stuff. Because I asked them, I said, well. Uh, are you putting this stuff on the website? And they said, "No, nah, you got to realize who we are. It's a provincial archives, and it's under taxpayer money. <laughs> so provincial archives, like I say, a state archives in the states. But so basically, what they have is a situation where they do birth certificates, death certificates, uh, sale of property, uh, church records, all this kind of stuff. They're not into UFOs. They're, this is the first weird collection they've ever taken in their life. And Stan was not a Canadian citizen." So they had to really sell it to the archives to get the archives, because you got to consider. I mean, you got three full-time archivists for four years. That's a lot of money that they're throwing at this thing to to do this. So they basically said, "No, we we're not set up for this. We're we're an archives that's that's into birth certificates, death certificates. We're not going to put this stuff online. Anybody wants to see this stuff, they got to come to New Brunswick to see it." So I sort of will put a lot of this stuff up. I have my White House UFO uh, Facebook channel. site where I put a lot I put a few quite a few documents there so when I find something that's kind of interesting uh, I stick it up there and I'm doing these uh, PowerPoint presentations I've done four of them already I'm not sure whether they're out yet or not I've done four of them I've got two more that are set up so for 40 minutes I'll go through uh, various documents on, on on a PowerPoint presentation and point out these things but there's really nothing explosive I didn't expect anything explosive with Stan. Um, in terms of, cause he was pretty open about his stuff. There was one piece of metal that did come to him. Um, and the guy said, here's the piece of the Roswell thing that I promised you. And it was in a little baggy. And it, I guess Stan didn't have time. It's like when you, when you get really going, you, you haven't got time to do a lot of the stuff that comes to you. So Stan just stuck it in a file. And I immediately told the archives, I said, you better protect that piece of metal. Someone's going to walk, walk in and just walk off of that thing. So now in order to see that piece of metal, you have to have an archive it's with you when you, when you see this piece of metal. And the other thing that they showed was, um, a photograph that was sent from in 1984 of a photograph taken in 1982 of field with a bunch of cows in it. And this was taken by a guy from a TV st- uh, station and, uh, half the part of the photo, part of the negative was sent to Stan and it shows, I think there's seven, uh, UFOs over the cows and they're clear, as clear as day. They're looking to exactly like the classic flying saucer. And uh, so there's these kind of weird uh, photographs. A lot of that stuff I'm going to have to go through one at a time because he could receive piles and piles and piles and piles of letters from average people on the street. Here's my story. Uh, you did a great job, this kind of stuff. And that's the kind of stuff where they're going to be very protective where, uh, I'm not allowed to really put the person's name out because, you know, it's, it's sort of personal stuff. So I have to really watch what I release from the archives. I've got to make sure that I don't, uh, you know, sort of uh, step over the line because if they cut me off, then it's game over. But I'll have to go back probably every six months for a couple of years to go through all this stuff. And it's not really something I'm really interested in. It's just I'm, I'm fascinated. It's like King Tut's tomb that you can go in there and you may find something that is just explosive that nobody's ever seen before. Almost like with with the, if you're familiar, I was in dragged into this whole thing with the Edgar Mitchell documents, with the, the alien autopsy document and the Wilson document. I mean, that's the basic what happens. That's what I do. I go to our collections where people die, and I go through the files, and every UFO researcher's got a story that someone came and told them and said, don't tell anybody, and they put it in a file, and it's sitting in that file waiting for me to go there and find it.
0: You mentioned earlier that our government doesn't know as much as many researchers would like to say and think. Um, And it makes me think that some of these whistleblowers, you know, like you hear the stories of Corey good and some of these others that claim to have been to Mars and all these jump rooms and this amazing technology. So uh, I imagine that we don't have any of this and they're just, I guess, spinning stories, um, you know, do we have a secret space program of sorts at all? Well, that, that's, my, that's
1: my whole thing. Because I, 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 I stayed away from those guys. I, I just said, you know, th- it's impossible to verify what they're saying. And um, so when I, that's when I saw this thing with the two pieces of metal, that if you got uh, Eric Davis, who's like, you know, hell put off the, the guy that ran the, the, um, the ATIP thing, that main contractor for ATIP. This guy is arguing with Jack Sarfati, and they're arguing about levitating this piece of metal. The other one is Joe Firmage. I was involved with Joe Firmage, and I had the question put to Joe Firmage. Joe Firmage has spent, depending what figure you got, between 20 and $95 million. And there's this big lawsuit that's going on now with uh, Bob Kiviat over this thing. But So he spent all this money on this, uh, this, this gyro thing. He's got these gy- uh, opposite gyros in there, they're spinning, and he believes he was given this sort of idea by this being that came in his room and stuff. And he he ran U.S. West. He was you know running a multi-billion dollar computer company, and he suddenly gets in the UFO thing. He's trying to levitate this thing off the table. He's not getting anywhere either. And so I asked the question to Joe Firmage. I had the question put to him, well, Joe, did, did, does the black ops have the technology? And he said, no, they don't. And, and this is the whole point. Like why would this multimillionaire guy spend up to $95 million trying to levitate something off the table? If he can just go into the black world and buy it from, for whatever, or at least stay, get on the right track of getting, getting to know that he's on the wrong, he's on the wrong track that there is material and try to figure out where that material is. And everywhere I went was same with, uh, when, um, Eric Davis, who worked the contract, said they shut down the, the crash saucer program in nineteen eighty nine because they couldn't figure it out and every seven or eight years. And I think George Knapp has indicated this as well. Every seven or eight years they pull it off the shelf and say, "Nap still can't figure it out and put it back on the shelf again. That you, you get stuff or I heard the story Richard Doty, when I interviewed him, said that they would bring pieces of, of the craft. So they have crafts, yeah, they have crafts and they have body they have at least one body. And so he would they would bring pieces of the craft to help Put off and say can you figure this thing out? And Hell would look at this piece of the craft and he didn't know what it was for or what it did or whatever. And um, so, so, again, there you have an indication that they really don't know. Hell's been working on this since 1970 and he's got very high level security clearance. And yet, you see when you go to the experience or if you look at the MILAB material, when the black ops people grab the, 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 the people out of their rooms and drug them and bring them in and say, what the aliens tell you and what's going on, they give the person a piece of, of the of the craft, the same as they do to help put off, and they say, can you make this work? And of course, the person can make it do whatever it's supposed to do. And then they, they apparently the word is, we got another one. And they know this is a legitimate experiencer that can make the craft work. It's this consciousness thing. You need the the, the, the person. Like 14% of all experiencers say they've flown the craft and and everybody ignores this. And I'm saying, you know, when, when people are flying the craft, maybe we should pay attention to what they're saying. And they'll always talk about this consciousness thing. So uh, one of the things um, that does sort of fit that I'll, I'll tell you the story um, is I had a meeting. This is 2013. I have a meeting with a bunch of rich guys in a cabin in Pennsylvania. And one of the guys that was there was a guy, is known as Tyler D., if you're familiar with the American Cosmic, Diane Pasolka's book, and um, Kit Green has said, if he, if you want to know what he knows after working on this whole UFO thing, the weird desk of the CIA since the 1970s, you want to know what's going on, he says take off the first couple of chapters of Diane Pasolka's book, the last couple of chapters, read the middle, that's what I think may be going on, if, if I'm right. So in this book, she talks about this Tyler D. guy, who's a, a NASA engineer, um, I know who he is because he was at this meeting. Uh, so I've had a couple of meetings with this guy and we're in this cabin and he's talking to me about experiences. And this is what I'm saying. You've got to go to the experiences. You've got to talk to people who are, have been in the craft, who have interacted with the beings. So he had an experience. He said, i have got these two women and they fill out like manuals for him. Like, their, pre, pre, uh, their precognitive events, what they're seeing in the future, uh, all this kind of stuff. And they're logging all things that are happening to them. And he's watching because that's what you do. You watch the people who are interacting with the phenomena. So he had one girl who was sort of very close to me. So I think Connie lives really near you. And I said, uh, really, where? And she said, "Steinbach." I said, well, man, that's 30 miles from my house. So I talked to this Connie and she tells me she's interacting with this, this Tyler D guy. So anyway, he's at this cottage. And here's, here's one of the ones where they may have some technology. Because I always talk about Ron Pandolfi keeps talking about this portal technology. So again, you're in the situation where I say if they're talking nuts and bolts, they don't know what's going on. But if they start talking about portals and consciousness, I watch it very carefully. Even though they may not have this, they're at least in the right ballpark. They're talking the right type, type of thing. That you're coming in and out of, of something. You're popping through... From one place to another and they're not flying they're coming through these portal wormholes whatever you want to call them so anyway so ron's talking about ron pendolfi's talking about this cia and there's all these firmages supposedly there was connection of him to, to portals so anyway i'm in this in this he tells me this tyler d tells me about these two girls he phones up to one he can't get a hold of but then he phones up and i talk to the other girl and then he's sitting there and he's got his cell phone he says what do you think of this? And he shows me this photograph. So now I sort of know who this guy is. Shows me this photograph. Well, anyway, he had a company. Let me give you a, a, a prelude before I get to this. He has a big company. He gets this invention. He has a being. He has this idea that comes in his head. And if you read the the, the book, it ends up at the Pentagon. He gets pulled into the Pentagon. This, this uh, general yelling and screaming, who came up with this idea? Tyler D. tells me. He said, you know, that idea, that came into my head in the morning when I woke up. He said the last thing I remember the night before was a hooded figure standing at the end of the bed. So this is the prelude. I know that something's go, Wow, this guy's a pretty cool guy. I mean, and he told me he was working at NASA and all this kind of stuff, and and that he got this thing put on the space shuttle and they wouldn't they would block in it. And he managed to get somebody to sign off and stuff like that. And he pulls his cell phone out and he shows me this photo, and it looks like these two guys flying through space, and they look like they're in the pajamas and the one guy's older than the other guy. Has no uh, signature as to who painted it, and he said, "So what do you think of this?" And I'm looking at, "Oh, that's pretty weird." I, I don't know what he's talking about. And then he he flips the next one, and it's a picture. It's a painting of these balls all going into the middle. There's big balls going into these smaller balls into the middle. Then there's a, a pit, uh, there's a painting of an eclipse. The, the the stages of an eclipse shows me that photo, and I'm going like, "What the heck's this guy doing?" He's showing me, and then he shows me these uh, sort of screens. On the side of a building where there's these, these uh uh space scenes of of outer space and stuff like that and then he says uh you know where this is and i says no he says uh this is the uh hughes, the old hughes aircraft building on 999 Sepulveda avenue in la and i go yeah okay what, whatever and he says that's the jumper and i go what y- what and so then I, I he shows me them again and he says you know where the one that's one with the two guys flying through space he says, you know where that is? And I said, no. He said, it's right outside the elevator. And I'm going, really? And then he he shows. Then he goes to the next photo, and he shows me this 56, 57 Chev that's on top of this parquet that's attached to the building. And he says, look at that, look at the back seat there. He says, look, there's a postcard there. And you can see the postcard. And so then he says, uh, he t- tells me this postcard's about like time travel. It's like some guys in Spain. France and he wishes he could travel through his time and space to be with his girlfriend in America. Or something. I go, really? That was on the postcard. I was like, wow, this is like bizarre. And he said, well, if you go to it, he says, make sure you, the security guard, make sure you don't, uh, he doesn't see you uh, when you're photographing these paintings in this lobby thing. And it's a huge aircraft building was where this jump room was supposed to be on the fifth floor. It went up to the fifth floor, and then Barack Obama and all these guys went to Mars or whatever. It just hokey story. But anyway, it's right outside the elevator, and I'm going, wow. So the first time I get to go to LA, I get off LAX, and, man, I forget. I'm going to this place, and I go there, and, I, and the security guard, and here's these paintings, just as, as Tyler D. had showed me. The only thing that wasn't there was the 56 Chev up on top of the, the park gate. But when I saw that, like, he just sort of showed it to me and said, so what do you think about this? So I actually uh, contacted Andy Basciago and I said, Andy, there's two buildings. Is the jump room is the, is the jump room in the first building or the second building? He said, I was, a, I was pretty young at the time. I don't remember it was, which, which was the front or the back building. Uh, but when I saw that, and coming from Tyler D., uh, I'm thinking, man, there's got to be something to this, because Tyler, he wouldn't have shown me that. He just showed and he didn't really make any claim that it was true or not clue. He just said, what do you think of these? And just sort of really got my curiosity going. So the, the thing with the portal thing, I think there may be something in terms of portal technology that they're working on. But in terms of, you know, the idea, the idea that they've got one mile long uh, uh, inner, inner um, gravity crafts that are flying around. And that that's, was put out, you know, this old 94-year-old guy was putting it out. And, and one of the documents I got years ago, I got the Douglas Aircraft documents were leaked to me a guy died he was doing the regressions it's what you do if you're doing a study they did a half million dollar study at douglas aircraft in the 1960s on flying saucers and and what you do is you bring a regressionist and you get people who've been on the ship and you regress them and say did they tell you how the flying saucer works that's what you do you don't forget the ufo photographs and all that nonsense you go to the people who are in interacting so i got these documents and uh they basically ran it for two years they spent half a million bucks and then shut it down because it didn't get anywhere. So then suddenly this, uh, I never think of the guy's name, this 94-year-old guy comes out with this book and says Douglas Aircraft was flying these things in the 1950s and they're going to other planets and stuff. So I contacted Bob Wood and I said, Bob, you're running this uh, Douglas Aircraft study in the 1960s and you're helping this guy write this book. And uh, you've got all this technology, mile-long anti-gravity crafts in the 1950s. And so, why would James Douglas give you half a million dollars in 1967, 1968, and you didn't discover anything? Like, this does not make sense, Bob. I mean, he, you know, if you had the technology, why would they? Why would you run a program in the 1960s and then come out to the conclusion you couldn't figure out anything? He said, I didn't have a security clearance, which didn't mean anything to me. I, I have still blows me away that that you can have those two positions that we have. We had all the crafts in the 1950s, and we are flying to different star systems, and the, the the aliens were walking around with thongs on and all this nonsense he put out. And and yet, in the 1960s, we know for it, because I got all the documents, and I put them on a British website. Nobody looks at them, because, you know, you know they, uh, people are on to whatever. Uh, I put these documents, they're all there, 100, 280 pages of Douglas aircraft, spent a half a million dollars, had all these engineers, and tried to figure out the UFO thing, and they couldn't figure it out. And the more I look, I, I recovered another one from uh, a study done by President Johnson, an eyes-only study on UFOs, 19, same time period, 1967-68, uh, manuscript, a guy was in charge of the project was writing a manuscript and died uh, as he was writing the manuscript. I got all that material. They knew nothing either. It's the same thing. We know UFOs exist. We've got photographs. We've got evidence that something is interacting with us. But beyond that, it's pretty much uh, a no-go that we have no idea as to how this thing actually operates, and I've, so I've seen it over and over again on these various things. And I've the 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 the, the Johnson papers I've not released. Uh, a lot of the stuff I've got, the, the stuff I put on, you know, the Douglas aircraft I put on in the, in Britain, nobody's looked at that stuff. So all this stuff is out there that shows these major studies that were done that shows no threats to national security. We don't know what's going on, but yeah, there's a phenomenon. Yes, this is for real.
0: There's stuff going on. Now, with everything going on, uh, the way things are progressing, do you think that in the future, in our lifetimes, that we will ever see possible open contact with these beings again
1: uh, we're, well, we've got open contact now there are people just are ignoring the people who've got the open contact there are, I mean there are people who have um, you know can basically bring them in, I guess, as you could say, or you get these cross uh, indexes the with, with the way I think the the way you have to realize is that le- things are eternal things go on forever, and that it's really got nothing to do with an end game um it's got to do with raising consciousness of the world and you see the the consciousness of the world's actually going the other opposite direction right now in terms of separation me versus you everybody's you know fighting and and the left brain is running the show in in most cases so um The the open contact, they have the open contact with certain people, but in terms of they're really not interested in um, the major, what people think, you know, like landing on the White House lawn because um, you can't do your kid's homework for them. You have to let people figure it out. That's why I have got in this thing about the theory of wow. So instead of, because both the government and the aliens are in the same situation, if they're aliens, whoever they are, they're both in the same situation. The government is not covering up. If the government wanted to cover up, it would do what the Canadian government has done since 1967. Just shut up and quit talking about it. The Canadian government, people ask me, what's the Canadian government doing? I haven't got the foggiest notion what the Canadian government is doing because they don't talk about it. it when you're talking about it, you're, you're, not, you're not covering up. So the government is not covering up, but they're not, they're, they're not disclosing either because if they wanted to disclose, they would stand up, the CIA director and the president, and just put it all on the table. They're not doing that. So they're doing something in between. That's this gradual, slow-dip disclosure. They're doing something in between. They're not disclosing. They're not covering up. The beings are doing exactly the same thing. If the beings wanted us to know what was going on, they could land on the White House lawn and make an announcement and tell us what's going on. Or they could take over the TV. They did that in 1976, the Colin Andrews story. They took over the TV for six minutes, and they put out a message. So they can do that anytime they want. They're not. The idea is not to give us the stuff. The idea is to do the wow thing, is to make you go, What the heck was that? Look at my PowerPoint presentation. Like, what is going on here? And it's like, whoa, some somebody's playing around here. And then you start to sit there and you try to figure it out. And you go, like, what's going on? And they want us to figure it out. They want us to think. Because when you come to conclusion as to what's going on, then it's solid. But you can't go in and do your kids' homework. So they, the the bees are doing the same thing. They're they're not if they wanted to cover up, they could turn the lights off on the craft. When they abduct somebody, if that's what's going on, nobody sees them abducting people. So if they want to cloak themselves, they can turn the lights off and nobody's gonna see them. They have lights on so that people can see them. They take a heart out of a cow. Without making an incision, an eleven nine by eleven inch heart out of a cow without an incision, because they want you to go. What the hell is going on? How did they do that? And I say to Linda, Howe, Like, Linda, why are uh, cattle mutilations bloodless? Because if they weren't bloodless, nobody would investigate them. They want it to be really, really weird. Or the crop circles. Like, how did they do that? How how could you make that big a crop circle in one night? That's just unbelievable. And that's what they're doing. They're doing this wow thing where they're making you go." what that and it's it's this gradual thing where uh, what life is all about we see it as like americans and canadians we see it as endpoint okay when are they going to get down to landing on the damn white house lawn and giving us the free energy so i can put it in my suv and fr- drive for free it's like we're into toys we're into material things and it's not it's about learning lessons and even if we destroy the world we will learn our lessons because we keep coming back so what they're doing is not giving us stuff which we think there, there is no messiah There is no Santa Claus, whether that's a politician or whether that's an alien. There's no Messiah. There's no Santa Claus. They're not here to give us stuff. They're here to wake us up and it's to sort of jog us, to make us, you know, think about this kind of stuff and to learn our lessons. They can't come in because if if they come in, you don't learn the lesson. It's basically, uh, they're doing the same slow grip disclosure where they're trying to get you to, uh figure it out for yourself. And, and I've, I've gotten there and you see more and more people since 2012 have gone down the consciousness road. You're starting to look at this thing and saying, well, maybe we've got this wrong. And um, I, my lectures now, I point out all the stuff you think is right is, is basically wrong. We've, you know, we used to believe the world was flat and we believed the, the sun ran around the earth and we believe there's 5,000 stars and, and, you know, that's, you see the stars where it is and actually it's a thousand light years away. So you're looking at the light from thousand light years away. And, and, and the fact that when Einstein developed the theory of relativity, they all believed there was only one galaxy. And it's this kind of stuff where you start going through all this stuff and everybody says, Oh, the universe, there's no, there's no time in space, but the universe began 13.7 billion years ago. I go something's wrong with that. Either there's no time and space or there's a big bang. And so now the big bang is, is different. Now the latest thing is, oh, we made a mistake. It's 11.4 or there's two two 200 trillion galaxies or 200 billion galaxies. And then suddenly in the last year, they suddenly go, whoops, we made a mistake. It's actually 2 trillion. We're only out by a thousand percent. And we just sort of, you know, as we go along, The more we go along with, the more we realize we've got it totally messed up and that we're missing the boat as to what's going on. And that's why we can't figure out the UFO thing, because we've got all the basic assumptions wrong. We're believing it's it's separate from us. We're believing it's nuts and bolts. We're believing all this nonsense that, that we've got in our heads. And that's what they're trying to do is gradually change our perception as to how does the world work. And that's why I say, if you understand what's behind the UFO phenomena, you realize you are playing in the Super Bowl of all stories. This is about reality. This is about how the world works. It's not so much just aliens coming here to entertain us, to give us stuff. It's part of reality. We're realizing reality is more than what
0: we thought it was. I agree a hundred percent. And thank you so much, Mr. Cameron, for coming on tonight. That was fascinating information. I still have two pages of questions that we could have gotten to, so I'm going to have to have you back on in the future. Thanks. I appreciate it. And let's do it again
1: sometime.